This podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be relied upon as legal, financial, or professional advice. A professional advisor should be consulted regarding your specific situation. It is also not an offer to sell or purchase Edgepoint Investment Funds. Congratulations. If you're listening to this commentary, you've made it to 2021. This is Derek Skowrowski, and the title of my commentary is Things That Make You Go Hmm. If you happen to blink, you might have missed it, but the market experienced a pretty steep drop in the first quarter of 2020. Since then, the economy's come a long way in trying to reopen and shut down, only to reopen and shut down again. Now, the world seems on the brink of recovery, with the breakthrough, that is, the long-awaited COVID-19 vaccine. Considering the widespread lockdown, travel restrictions, consumer trepidation, and plunging business confidence, there's little doubt that the market rebound we've experienced owes itself, in large part, to the previously inconceivable levels of government spending and central bank support. More debt plus more debt equals more debt. And for Canadians, from the perspective of our national debt, navigating our way through the pandemic has been one pricey endeavor. Between the end of 2019 and September of 2020, Canada's total debt-to-GDP ratio increased by over 75%, the highest among 15 mature markets. To put that in perspective, Japan and the United States are second and third on the list at around 50 and 45%, respectively. Given a forecast Canadian federal deficit of $381.6 billion, the federal debt-to-GDP ratio will rise to 50.7% by the end of the fiscal year and in March 2021. Not to stop there, a full $121.2 billion in added spending is penciled in for the 2021-2022 budget, bringing the forecast federal debt to GDP to 52.6% by March of 2022. Of course, the government debt burden of the average Canadian does not stop at the federal level. In Canada, provinces bear the brunt of the larger spending programs like healthcare and education and incur the debt to fund these outlays. Canada's federal debt is only half the picture and the trajectory of Ontario's financial position is even worse than our federal government. Since the early 1990s, Ontario's debt to GDP has increased from the low teens to almost 40% in 2020. The provincial projections over the next three years shows that that ratio will rise to 50% of GDP by 2022. And it's not just Ontario. Each and every province owes the two layers of debt that fund federal and provincial spending. Adjusting for these balances, Canadians entered 2020 as financially stretched as most heavily indebted nations. Combining the projected increases, debt to GDP for the average Ontarian will rise towards 105% by March of 2022. We are entering newfound territory in the amount of borrowing assumed by our country, and it's anyone's guess how this plays out. To borrow all this money, the Government of Canada issues bonds, and in 2020, by far the largest buyer of those bonds was our country's central bank, the Bank of Canada. From January through the end of November 2020, the Bank of Canada had already purchased more than $225 billion of bonds issued by the federal government and it now owns almost 35% of all bonds outstanding. Purchases continue to the tune of $4 billion per week. But the Bank of Canada lending spree isn't confined to direct purchases of Government of Canada bonds. 
To support markets in 2020, our central bank also purchased provincial bonds, Canadian mortgage bonds, money market funds, and corporate bonds. More significantly, the Bank of Canada has been lending enormous sums of money to Canada's largest financial institutions by taking so-called securities purchased under resale agreements as collateral. Canada's financial institutions then turn around and, for example, lend those proceeds to buyers of Toronto houses, or they themselves buy more Canadian government bonds. All told, the Bank of Canada has expanded its balance sheet which is a euphemism for printed money, by more than $400 billion to fund the large deficits that we have seen this year. Assuming the bond purchase program continues at $4 billion per week through the end of March 2021, the roughly $475 billion in cumulative central bank support will almost exactly offset the federal borrowing needs for the 2020-2021 fiscal year of $469 billion. If you were wondering what modern monetary theory was, we are living it. So what happens now? The situation laid out is by no means unique to Canada, also we do find ourselves at the top of the more debt list. And the point isn't to argue the necessity of the spending or how we got here. But we must ask the question that no one wants the answer to, and that is, what happens now? Nothing good in our view. The debate today is split between two separate camps. The first camp thinks that the debt burden caused by ballooning government deficits and the higher tax or lower spending that results will be a significant drag on economic activity and result in slower growth and deflation. The second camp thinks that the fact that we printed all the money needed to fund the deficits will result in rising inflation. For anyone holding fixed income securities like long-term bonds, rising inflation would, in a nutshell, destroy investor wealth. But investors would be no better off lending money to a government with runaway deficits that is simultaneously grappling with deflation. This would be like taking on a mortgage to buy a big house and then having your wages cut each year going forward. Central banks are unlikely to allow deflation to take hold, and will avoid it at all costs. They would get more deliberate in their money printing before allowing declining prices and lower tax revenue to take hold. At this point, inflation may be the only way out. We've entered a world of phony interest rates and a false sense of security. With a central bank on pace to purchase the equivalent of 100% of all Government of Canada bond issuance this year, we can say with some level of certainty that market-observed interest rates are no longer representative of reality, and anyone buying them is in for a tough slog. Not a single point on the Canadian yield curve today offers a positive return after accounting for inflation using any of the recorded readings of average core inflation over the past seven years. We believe buying bonds at these yields is a good way to run out of money before you die. The elephant in the room is the risk that interest rates start to rise and the cost to carry all this debt begins to threaten the long-term finances of our country and the provinces. Needless to say, the record low interest rates that accompany massive central bank bond buying have prolonged the day of reckoning for all significant borrowers by reducing the carrying costs of their debt. As governments and individuals surpass any previous record, 
for amount of debt, it seems to be growing consensus that interest rates can't go higher because it would decimate borrowers. And they say millennials are utopic. So interest rates can't move higher because our country can't afford it. However, the notion that relentless deficit spending and money printing won't be inflationary is impossible to imagine. Since they've gotten away with it so far, the world's central banks seem to think there is no limit and no repercussion to their action. But the point isn't to push it to the limit. We do not want to see the limit. We're playing with fire and we are doused in kerosene. So don't be the lender to lock in historically low interest rates. In Edgepoint's growth and income portfolios, we can avoid the potential pain of rising interest rates and inflation by buying only short-term bonds while waiting for a more realistic interest rate environment before committing capital for any term. Our unwillingness to own long-dated bonds has and will continue to mean that when interest rates decline in a meaningful way, our fixed income investments are likely to exhibit lagging performance over a short time frame compared to a benchmark or other investments that own longer-term bonds. We experienced such an episode in the first quarter of 2020, but as interest rates decline towards zero, we are all the more incented to avoid these long-term bonds. It is our view that the potential for rising inflation is the most mispriced risk in investment markets today. As a result, long-term bonds are loaded with more risk and less reward than at any time in history. While we did not benefit from this year's decline in interest rates, we found other opportunities by taking advantage of dislocations in the corporate bond market. The volatility exhibited earlier this year and the bifurcated markets that continue to this day have allowed us to make up a substantial portion of the shortfall that came from owning only short-term bonds while protecting the portfolios from the risk of rising inflation and higher interest rates. Just like we are fully unwilling to buy long-term government bonds at artificially low yields that are unlikely to deliver a return that exceeds even inflation, our government would sure like to sell them. If they can lock in phony interest rates by selling 30-year bonds to unbeknownst investors outside of the central bank, for example, mindless index funds, all the power to them. It can pay to have an active manager who will stay clear of such nonsense. Our advice, don't be the patsy to buy those long bonds. We're going to shift gears a bit to focus on activity within our corporate bond portfolios. And we thought it was important to discuss how we're not paid for what did not happen. Something that isn't talked about enough in portfolio management are the risks that a portfolio is designed to handle. Unlike the precarious state of our country's finances, we need to run our portfolios under the assumption that interest rates might move higher. We also need to assume that credit markets could tighten. Companies' access to financing could dry up. Valuations might matter, and the animal spirits that today dominate the credit market could dissipate. If any of this happens, our investment approach relies on an often forgotten consideration in security selection. That is, company fundamentals. What investors endured in March 2020 was no ordinary correction. Look as far back as the Berkshire Hathaway meeting early in May to see Warren Buffett, likely the greatest investor of our time, suggest there were times in the first quarter where it felt like $120 billion in dry powder wasn't enough cash. In times of little to no liquidity, company fundamentals come screaming to the fore. And despite the volatility experienced in our corporate bond holdings, at no time was there a risk to the survival of our businesses. 
Record monetary stimulus and government fiscal spending had some positive impact on market performance. But if we had not gotten them, we still would have needed a portfolio that could survive and thrive. In our online version of this commentary, we show a table first introduced in June 2020, originally meant to highlight how our portfolio of smaller, misunderstood, and unrated bonds was not experiencing the rapid rebound of larger liquid, widely followed names. By the end of May, the dust had settled on the market and things were no longer on fire. But recovery and any certainty surrounding the ultimate impact of COVID-19 was still a long way off. The market collapse in early 2020 was an incredible opportunity, but that does not mean we bet the farm on rapid pandemic recovery. With uncertainty at the fore, our focus was on buying the mispriced bonds of businesses that we had conviction could withstand the pandemic and economic shutdown regardless of how long the circumstances endured, yet still offered exceptional returns. By no means is this a perfect measure, but to illustrate the resilience of the types of businesses we were buying in the midst of pandemic, we can highlight the performance of some of these companies' stocks in calendar year 2020. On average, at the end of May, eight of the largest companies in our portfolio had a yield to worst of 9.6%. Yet over the full year, these companies, these very same businesses, delivered an equity return of 51.8%, defying any impact that might have been assumed from the pandemic. Hindsight is 2020. And after watching how strongly the securities of COVID impacted businesses have responded, owing more to central bank support and the U.S. Federal Reserve than anything fundamental to most businesses, it is possible that we were giving too wide a berth to the lasting impact of the pandemic on many companies. As things stand, the now famous Barstool Sports, Presidente, David, David A. Trader, Portnoy portfolio, blindly buying airlines, cruise ships, rental cars, and the suppliers selling into these businesses was the right move if we wanted to make a lot more money. But it wasn't the prudent move. Howard Marks, chairman of Oak Tree Capital Markets, often talks about the six-foot-tall man who drowned crossing a stream that was five feet deep on average. There are bad days in markets, and on the days that have no liquidity, no dilutive equity raises, no government backstop, and no patsy investors awash in cash to offload your investors to, you still need to get your money back. It is important to reiterate, while our high-yield bond portfolio experienced meaningful downside volatility in the first three months of 2020, it is our belief that at no time were our businesses at risk of suffering permanent loss to the enterprise. We will never jeopardize meaningful loss for potential return. The collapse in junk bond prices at the start of 2020 was the second worst drawdown in high-yield history. There is no reason to expect such episodes of volatility will be more common in the future than they have in the past. But when we get them, such periods should be treated as a gift to anyone looking to maximize future returns. If there's any clear takeaway from the past 12 months, it's that high-yield bonds remain one of the best ways to capitalize on chaotic markets and deploy capital at attractive rates, all the while protecting from permanent loss even under the most extreme adverse scenarios. More recently, as markets have recovered, medical professionals have a better understanding of the severity of COVID-19 The population has adapted to living with the virus and long-awaited vaccines are being deployed around the world. Markets are starting to envision life beyond the pandemic. While many businesses are experiencing only temporary disruption, others could see permanent impairment to their enterprise. 
Despite the rebound in stocks and bonds of many pandemic-impacted businesses, longer-term issues and challenges remain. For example, office space could see lower demand as senior executives realize the benefits of working from home and look to rationalize office footprint to cut costs and to operate more efficiently. Business air travel that made up 80% of pre-pandemic revenue for airlines and rental car companies may return only slowly, impacting demand for these services. Cruise lines could experience a prolonged period of oversupply as pre-ordered ships continue to be delivered and as stretched balance sheets lead to intense price competition. And finally, with any decline in even medium-term travel demand, aircraft manufacturers could slow or reduce build rates on new aircraft, changing the profitability profile for many suppliers in the aircraft space. It's a bumpy road to long-term outperformance, and not all of our businesses were immune to the impact of COVID-19. One of our high-yield securities is a bond of an energy services company, Tervita, whose stock remains priced as if oil was still priced at the unprecedented $35 per barrel we saw back in May. But relative to most energy services company, the business has uniquely wide margins, low fixed costs, and low sustaining capital requirements, and has proved resilient in 2020. Similarly priced oil and gas businesses that we thought would offer outsized returns at the start of 2020 are all the more enticing today. We had a small default in the portfolio when Hertz, the car rental company, failed to make a payment on its vehicle financing and filed for bankruptcy to restructure its debt. We still had a positive holding period return on this bond. Along the same lines, we bought and subsequently sold the bonds of Air Canada early in the pandemic. While it is important to be aggressive in times of market turmoil, in each of these two cases, we struggled to answer questions about the long-term earnings power of these businesses, and we felt it was irresponsible to retain these positions. Time will tell whether these companies are successful on the other side of COVID. In our view, neither is out of the woods despite the strong rebound in the prices of their bonds. With vaccination, visibility on a path forward, and a better understanding of how shutdowns impact the cash flow profiles of different businesses, we have recently invested in discounted bonds of companies that have been more impacted by COVID-19, but at the same time could easily manage if current conditions persist. We believe each of the following bonds were priced to offer near double-digit returns at time of investment. For example, Dave & Buster's operates a chain of highly profitable restaurants that combine food and amusement games and whose venues have returned to 90% of 2019 sales in regions that have reopened. Also, in a U.S. market that may very well see a reduction in the number of cinemas, Cinemark has the strongest balance sheet and the most prudent management team and is uniquely positioned to benefit from struggling competitors. Finally, we've initiated a position in a company disdained by the market as a result of its highly lucrative coal royalty portfolio, but whose equity stake in an unrelated business may, in our view, be worth the value of the company's debt, and whose bonds are priced to yield 11.5%. The strong return since the depths of March cannot go on forever, and we are not immune to a world of low interest rates and tight credit spreads. But our portfolio is not the market. Looking back on 2020, it's interesting to think that we've earned a satisfactory, positive fixed income return, despite having endured the greatest pandemic of the past 100 years, and all the while we are left with a more attractive portfolio on the other side. 
As much as it is our job to add value by protecting the portfolio in tough times, we similarly expect to add value when returns are scarce by prudently managing risk and continuing to look where others aren't looking. Thank you for your time and all the best in 2021. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. This is not an endorsement or recommendation of any security. Edgepoint Investment Group may be buying or selling positions in securities mentioned. No endorsement of any third parties or their advice, opinions, information, products, or services is expressly given or implied by Edgepoint Investment Group. This podcast contains certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance results, and the actual results or market developments may differ materially from these statements. The whole or any parts of this podcast may not be reproduced, copied, transmitted, or disclosed to third parties without the consent of Edgepoint Investment Group.